0: Quote a home and car bundle today at progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Debbie Melman. Canva is
1: great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. at canva.com designed for work the camera's pretty big your face was
2: hidden you could be there but not really be there i'm in it but i'm not of it that's always been a kind of protective layer for me
1: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Lynn Goldsmith
0: talks about photography and about the positive side of sexual attraction in the workplace.
2: It's not that you have to act on it. It acts on you.
1: For some of us, the 80s don't feel so far away. In fact, we simply don't understand where they went. Well, fear not, they are alive and well in Lynn Goldsmith's new book of iconic photographs of musicians and performers, aptly titled, Music in the 80s. Included are portraits of the era's greatest artists, including Patti Smith, Debbie Harry, Iggy Pop, David Bowie, Bruce Springsteen, Sting, Bob Marley, and Miles Davis at work in recording studios, glamming it up in concerts, out and about in New York City, and lying around at home. Lynn Goldsmith is also a recording artist, so she knows that world intimately. Over her long and legendary career as a photographer, she has created a vast archive of images, of which this book is only a shimmering sliver. Lynn Goldsmith, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you. I'm really honored and humbled to be asked since you have done so many podcasts on people
1: that I admire. Well, thank you. Lynn, I wanna ask you, is it true that you were a semi finalist in the nineteen sixty-four Miss Teen America competition?
2: Yeah, I have a actual piece of paper like a diploma. Yeah, I was the runner up. If only the winner had died or something, you know, then I would have <laughs> been Miss Teenage America.
1: Uh, That's often the way I feel about being prom queen in my high school. I lost by one vote. And I found out later that my date actually voted for the woman that won, for the young (laughs) woman that won. I'm still bitter over it, obviously. Oh, it's not Um, worth being bitter. You know, we all have (laughs) a path that's meant to lead us somewhere. You were born in Detroit, Michigan, between Seven Mile and West Outer Drive in what you've described as an ordinary middle-class neighborhood. And I understand growing up, your nickname was Butterball. Yes, because I would sneak into the refrigerator
2: whenever possible and take an entire pound of butter and try to eat it as fast as possible so that it wouldn't get taken away from me. And I did that probably <laughs> for a number of years. Yeah, so my family called me Butterball. And what was it about butter that you liked so much? I have no idea. You know, it's the same thing now. Why did I like peanut butter and jelly with a cold glass of milk so much that I ate it every day of my life for
1: probably 13 years? I have no idea. Wow. Wow. Well, I know your parents divorced when you were four years old. After your dad left, you lost your appetite and became so skinny. Kids called you Lynn the Pin. And this was also a time when divorce wasn't talked about very much. And I read that you sometimes felt ashamed about your parents' divorce. My parents also divorced in 1969 when I was eight years old. And I felt the same way. How did you manage through that time? Well, feelings aren't as simple as just being ashamed, which at moments I was
2: going sometimes to girlfriends' homes or having to explain something in school that my mother was at work. And on the other side of the coin, I felt incredibly blessed because the household was my sister my mother, myself, and then for a period of time, a woman who lived with us to take care of us and be there because my mother oftentimes had to work late or we needed to have a live-in person help out. But I felt that it was a really fun household of women. And oftentimes when I went to other kids' homes, their parents argued or brothers and sisters argued. So I was really happy that I had this environment which was different from anybody else's that I knew. In some ways I felt you know, as blessed as I did sometimes feeling
1: shame. When you were seven years old, you first heard songs like Fats Dominoes, All By Myself, and Little Richard's Tutti Frutti. How did that affect you at the time when you first heard those tunes? Oh Well, music has
2: always had a very powerful connectivity for me to the concept of love. When I was four years old, because they were getting a divorce, and it was summertime, they sent me to overnight camp with my sister who was eight years old. I was the youngest and smallest kid in camp and I really missed my mother and the counselor, because I would cry at night, whimper in my bed, and probably in part, she didn't want me to wake up the other campers in our cabin. She would take me out on a swing sing to me until I would stop crying and fall asleep. So the connection of music to feeling an inner peace and a sense of belonging somewhere has always been quite powerful.
1: Your mom brought you your first record case to keep the 45s that you were collecting together. And I know when she gave it to you, there was a record inside it already. What record was it?
2: Uh, Elvis Presley's. I think it was Love Me Tender.
1: Yeah, you've written about how she would hum that song and you knew that you each understood the other in a special way. And it was one of my favorite lines that I read in your work about how much music impacted you and what it did to you. Well, to
2: share something with... A person who has the role of being a parent and yet you feel like they they needed that song and those words as much as you do creates a connection, at least it did for me, which is somewhat beyond just the natural mother-daughter connection. It was a connection of that there's pain in life and that what we really all want to get rid of that sense of isolation is love. I've always felt that my mother's joy, that I could see her experience from music, dancing around the house to Xavier Cugat, there was music in our, in our house to make us all
1: feel a stronger bond of family and love. On the weekends visiting with your dad, you and your sister spent time playing with his train set while he would take pictures of you. And that's when you first encountered a photography darkroom. What was that first experience in the darkroom like for you?
2: Well, my father always was a serious amateur, both photographer and filmmaker. So I even remember, you know, when we all lived together, my dad making movies, you know, or taking pictures for various events. When my mother and father divorced, he had more time to spend in the dark room and and because it was on weekends that was my way of you know really being with him so experiencing the act of a piece of paper going under a light in this small room alone with my dad and then seeing my own face come up on the paper really imprinted on me the magic of photography. And it became even more of a aspect of connection for me because, you know, it was my dad. And this was the way I got his attention was being in that room with him.
1: He gave you your first camera. It was a baby brownie camera. What were your first photographic subjects about and where did you get your ideas at that time?
2: Oh, I just would follow my dad pretty much in the very beginning. You know, he'd go out in the garden. You know, I'd go where he went and make pictures and then we'd go in the dark room and I'd watch him process the film. I didn't do that. My hands were too small, but I did learn to print at that time and to understand there were these different chemical baths that would make the picture appear. So the whole idea of having art form to express myself in was much more conducive to who I was than when he gave me, you know, I think one of the first gifts I ever got from him was like a science kit with all these tubes of things that I was supposed to create or do. And I didn't understand any of it, (laughs) but photography felt very natural for me. It also meant that when I was alone, my imagination, if I wasn't with my dad making pictures and my mom was working and my sister being four years older, certainly didn't wanna hang out with uh, you know such a little kid, I could take pictures of my dolls, and my dolls were my friends. And I could dress them up. And then when I went to my grandmother's, we could make some new outfits for them. You know, all, all of which, when I look back on those experiences, are very clear directives. For what ended up becoming celebrity portraiture of dressing people up and playing with them.
1: Your dad thought your photographs were so wonderful. He got you a grown up camera. Shortly thereafter, your mom also got you a turquoise transistor radio. That's how my dad got me that. Well, one of your parents. Yeah, my and dad got that. me that radio. <laughs> Who got you the Gibson guitar? Oh, my mother. And when did you start performing and what kind of music were you making initially? Well, before
2: I ever had the Gibson guitar, I really uh, wanted to play the piano, but we didn't have room nor did my mother have the finances for piano lessons. So she got me this mangus organ and I would play on that. But, you know, I felt it. Limited. I wanted something else. And when I saw people like there was a folk singer by the name of Lynn Gold at the same time as like Joan Baez, and you know, they were heroes. Same thing for Odetta. And so I wanted a guitar. My mom saved up, and a guitar was cheaper, <laughs> cheaper than a piano.
1: You've written about how Bob Dylan, listening to Bob Dylan, made you feel that being alive was about seeing your own life as a chance to learn and that whatever emotion you might feel was temporary. Yeah. And I'm wondering if if that impacted your approach to writing your own music.
2: Well, it totally impacted, you know, my life because prior to Bob Dylan, the biggest kind of entertainment uh, influence on my thinking came from watching old Fred Astaire and Ginger Roger movies on TV, or pretty much any films then, but I really loved Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And what would happen, you know, within the storyline was, you know, two people fall in love, and then there's some sort of misunderstanding, and their relationship flounders, and in fact, it is in the danger zone of ending completely, but then something happens and the misunderstanding is cleared up and they dance off into the sunset to live on forever, happily ever after. And that's what I thought. I thought problems in life will come up, but that they get solved. That's the way that it worked and then you, dance off into the rest of life. And with Bob Dylan's lyrics, I was able to understand and realize that what I thought was true was not accurate, that in life there will be continued problems, continued misunderstandings, and that you solve them, hopefully, and then you move on, and then more things happen. And what does happen may not be just, it may not be fair. Life doesn't play by some sort of rule book that you know you're going to, like, win on this journey. That's not what it is. The journey is the journey. And that really, I think, was in part because of his lyrics and also because I was ready to hear it.
1: On February 9th, 1964, the Beatles made their first live U.S. television appearance, and more than 70 million people watched these four young men from Liverpool make history on The Ed Sullivan Show. Lynn, you are the only person I've ever encountered who saw the Beatles perform live on that show that night. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? Yes, my
2: stepfather, my my mother remarried when I was about 14. So this is after 10 years of my mom being a single working mother and living in a household of three women in Detroit, when suddenly I'm told we're moving to Miami Beach. And now I have this father. I wasn't really receptive to that. I didn't want to move. I was looking forward to starting at Mumford High School. So I really didn't care for George, who was my new stepfather, and to move to this place, which was so different from where I had grown up. The world that I grew up in was racially diversified. Miami Beach was not. And it it all looks so different to me. And now we were wealthy. My stepfather owned hotels in Miami Beach. And because he wanted me to love them and to realize that he wanted to be a dad, he decided to get the opportunity for me to be in the lobby when the Beatles arrived at the Deauville Hotel before the show. I also had tickets for the show with him. I didn't want to go. My mother said that I said, George has no idea who I am. You know, uh, I'm a rhythm and blues girl. I'm Detroit. I'm Motor City. I have no interest in these wimps, the Beatles. My mother said, well, you know, Lynn, if I have to choose between George and you, I'm choosing George. So you better get your act together (laughs) and go with George. And so we went and I was, you know, I had my camera because I had already had a tour of hotels and was just floored by what they looked like. I mean, when you come from Detroit to go into the Fountain Blue or the Deauville or any of the Eden Rock, you know, it was like some magical world of color and light. And I'd never seen anything like that. So I went with my stepdad and my camera, and uh, I was very happy photographing the carpets of the Deauville Hotel that had these amazing designs. When the Beatles came through the door, I wasn't as tall as the men that were there. It was all men photographers and my stepfather kind of pushed me forward and I took a picture of their feet on the carpet, but I I didn't want to really look at them. I somehow felt it would be a betrayal to the Rolling Stones. You know, you chose. Right, it, back
1: then you had to choose. Yeah,
2: you chose. You were either a Stones fan or a Beatles fan. You know, what I remember, was John Lennon grabbing my arm, my forearm, and saying, "Don't yeah, you will not the fancy. And I just thought I had the cooties, like he touched me. <laughs> and I just said no, and I pulled my arm away. And it was seen by someone from the local newspaper who asked if they could process my film, and they ran a little story. In- You know, that was really
1: my first published photograph. You went to the University of Michigan, and by the time you started your sophomore year, you were the lead singer of a five-person band called The Walking Wounded. What kind of music did you play?
2: Well, I played bass and sang, but there was also another lead singer, the guy who played lead guitar We basically did cover songs. I would try to imitate Grace Slick or Janis Joplin. I would, in order to do a Janis song, the whole night before, I would get a pillow and like just scream into it to try to have a hoarse voice, which probably was (laughs) not good for my voice box. You know, I knew that I could dance, but singing, I'm more akin to folk singing or being a country singer, but that's not what I wanted to be. I wanted to be Aretha. I wanted to be a soul singer, and I just didn't have it.
1: At that time, did you want to be a professional musician performing in a band? Oh,
2: yeah. Once I started singing and playing and also performing, I was clear that that was the path that I wanted to take. However, that's not what was in store for me, because the band, The Walking Wounded, had traveled. We also did gigs in New York at the Cafe Wah. opened for Frank Zappa at the Grandy Ballroom in Detroit before Jim Osterberg or Iggy Pop went on. And before he was Iggy, he was Jim in a band called The Prime Movers. So I I was clear that this was my tribe. I had thought about being an actress and I or directing, being a filmmaker, but they didn't give me that same kind of experience that making music did. Unfortunately, on one of our trips to New York, we met a band called Children of Paradise, Artie and Happy Trong. And so when they came to Ann Arbor to perform, my band and their band got together. And then there was something that came on the radio about flying saucers being seen in Ypsilanti, which is near the U of M, near Ann Arbor. And I had a car. So we all got in my car and I didn't know they had drugs on them. And I got pulled over for driving too slowly because I was looking for saucers. And uh, <laughs> uh, and so I got pulled over and they searched the car and they found under the driver's seat these drugs, which was a surprise to me. Uh, and so
1: I was arrested. It was my car. The Children of Paradise dudes didn't cop to this. They, no. they let you take the blame. That's right. And you were charged with a felony. Yeah. And they left me in jail. Have you, ever, have you ever talked to them about this? Have well, you ever said, dudes, what were you thinking? Decades
2: and decades later, I had a home in Woodstock, and that's where Artie and Happy Traum live. And I ran into them on the street and told them what I thought of them, which made me feel better. And then since that time, I've run into people who know them, that, you know, talk about how wonderful they are. And maybe they became wonderful people and maybe just they were scared and they wanted to get out of it. But in any case, I had to make a deal with my stepfather that I would no longer be in my band and no longer go after a career in music or he would not pay for my legal representation. So I thought, okay, well, I'll be a filmmaker or I'll be an actress and I'll figure this out. And they also made me promise, which then I had to have a heavier load of credits needed at school, to also get my secondary teacher's certificate, which is means you can teach in high school. And I chose to do, you know, English. So that's why I say in life. Things happened. <laughs> and I try to
1: go with the flow. You know, I really didn't want to go to prison. Your your legal representation was able to negotiate a misdemeanor. Yes. You were given probation. And when you returned to Miami Beach, you worked as a substitute English teacher at the high school that you had graduated from. Well, that from. was my
2: agreement. I wanted I've always yeah. I wanted to live in New York. And I had agreed when I made this deal that I would stop doing music and that I would get, in addition to my Bachelor of Arts degree, that I would get from the School of Education a teacher's degree, that I would then commit to six months of teaching. And, you know, I kept to my word. I went back to my own high school, Miami Beach High, and I was teaching there about three and a
1: half years after I had graduated from that high school. When you moved to New York City, you arrived with, I believe, one dollars dress in a small suitcase.
2: Yes, it was a white dress.
1: <laughs> what were you hoping to do once you arrived in New York?
2: Oh, I was going to get a job. This is what I thought. Because by that time, you know, having studied film and television directing, at U of M and really falling in love with Jean Renoir, Godard and many other French filmmakers, in addition to people like Fellini. I wanted to get a job at a film production company and then figure out the the pathway to directing feature films. And when I went to all of these production companies, because that was what I wanted before going for television. I wanted, you know, just to make films and all the production companies, because they saw that I had graduated in three years with two degrees, magna cum laude, they couldn't imagine that I would be someone who just wanted to run for coffee. And I think probably being female, They didn't think I could lift equipment or do a variety of things. So after being rejected by so many of them, I then tried to figure out, okay, well, how do I get into television? And I had met someone who later on married Bill Murray, Mickey. And she told me she'd gotten a job as a tour guide at NBC. And after like six months, they move you into being a production assistant. Well, I'm someone who, you know, I mean, to graduate in two years with three degrees, I mean, in three years with two degrees, and to also during that time have been on the road with a band. I'm not someone who wants to take six months as a tour guide. So I did, auditioned for the job, and I got it. But it only took me 10 days then to get a job as a writer on a television show called Personality. Because, you know, the guide job got me into the offices and on TV sets. And I met the people on the show Personality, which was just about writing questions for contestants to answer. And so I kept bringing them questions, and then they finally just said, "Oh, let's hire her." So I had that job until I hated it, and uh, went looking for another aspect of TV that I could be in, or felt myself being drawn back to the world of music, basically because you know that was where I felt my tribe was. Those were the people that I felt were most like me. So from there, I knew that Iggy was then on Electra Records and the MC5. And there were only about 10 people who worked at Electra Records at the time. And I had heard that Danny Fields, their publicist who I had met back in Ann Arbor when he came to see bands there, and that's how Iggy and the MC5 got signed, that he was leaving. So I thought I would try to get his job. If I was going to be writing, I'd rather be writing and maybe making films of the musicians because I had ideas about how to promote music with films. So I presented it to Jack Holzman, and I got hired at Elektra Records. And the story kind
3: of goes on from there. Hey, y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In The Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. And the founder of an online education platform called I Love Creatives. And on the show, Puno shares her journey from working on the Call of Duty video game to building both a design studio and a trade school for digital design. Puno has practical advice for taking a thoughtful and iterative approach to career building most importantly, this show is actionable. It's about how you can take your own next step in the creative world and into the creator economy. It'll help you discover creative, intriguing people who are making a living, and it'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In the Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In the Making and Adobe Express for their support.
1: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. I want to talk to you about your remarkable career in photography, but I also want to ask you about the work that you did with the band Grand Funk. Because I think it's a really remarkable story about one of the first times a band was very distinctly repositioned. You know, we can look back on it now and say, that's what you were doing. I don't know that anybody would have said it specifically in that way at that time, but it was really revolutionary. You came up with the idea— to make an album focused on the theme of being an American band. You inspired them to write We're an American Band, the song, the classic song, catapulted them to the top of the charts. You also worked on the design of their albums, the band's visual identity, including all the graphics. Your work changed the trajectory of their career, but you had also never done that kind of work before. Oh, well, what sort of um, I had at Electra Records. And, but, but not to that scope. I mean, well, you my really experience were. Experience
2: at Electra. To me, everything is like common sense. You don't have to be that smart. An example is this at Electra Records, I was the director of public, that my title was the director of publicity and marketing. And I went around to what were the three trades at the time record world, Cashbox, and billboard. And I saw that all the record labels, much less independent publicity companies, when a record was going to come out, would leave or send a picture of the band and a written biography. And that these people who worked at the places for World Cash to Billboard were, you know, people my age. And they just had this stack of papers to read. And I thought, you know, my mom, when she would take a trip to the Caribbean, she would find like, uh, uh, somehow she got her voice on like a a record that became a postcard. And so I did research and found out who made those things. And I went to Jack Holzman and I said, listen, if I interview the artist, I can cut radio spots from it and I can make this thing that I want to call the bio disk and send it out to Record World Cash Box and Zillboard. And they've never gotten things like this before. So when they open it, they're going to read it first, they're going to look at it first. And the same thing when I said to him on Delaney and Bonnie, you know, there are places in Europe that show films. And Delaney and Bonnie were basically popular in America, but they didn't have European representation to the degree that they did in the US. And it was helpful that Eric Clapton had joined them. So I said, you know, let me make a little 16 millimeter film and send this out. Well, all of this led to, you know, years later, when I'm working on Grand Funk, I knew I needed an entire plan. I needed to look at who is Grand Funk's audience. What will people respond to that's different and yet feel familiar? In addition, what kind of, you know, the the people who love Grand Funk, particularly at that time, were hardworking blue-collar people. And it even though tickets were so much less expensive than, than they are now, it's still something to take a person out, take them for dinner, and go to a show. And I wanted it to be a show, not just a band coming on stage playing in their blue jeans. I wanted to create something that people would go home and talk about and and it would be an experience and that their money was well spent because they had this experience. This is just the way that I think if you work at putting yourself in other people's The ideas will flow as to how to get them to do what it is you want them to do. Listen, if Grand Funk had been successful, they had lost their following when they put out the album uh, Phoenix. And, you know, my timing was such that people were ready to listen to me, especially Andy. But what motivated me to do that has really been something that I've been giving a lot of thought to as of late, which is how much sex motivates us, attraction. That's what I mean by sex. Because I don't know, even though I was no longer happy, I had told Joshua White Prior to working with Grand Funk, and the reason for working with Grand Funk was I was directing a television show called ABC in Concert, and that was really due to Joshua White, who is the founder, creator of the Joshua Light Show, and then Joshua Television. And I had started, when I left Electra, I left it to go work with Joshua on Joshua Television. It was Joshua Television and Joshua who were approached by ABC. And it was Joshua who insisted that I was part of it all, and that's how I got in the Director's Guild. And I think part of that was not only because I was talented and Joshua recognized it and and I was helpful to him, but I think it's also because You know he was in his own ways in love with me and when i moved on to just do grand funk it was really because andy the person who had become grand funk's new manager and who knew nothing about marketing he only knew about touring i was basically you know now the shoe was on my foot i think i did that in part not only because of the creative opportunities that I felt were there and how I could be helpful and serve, but because I was attracted to Andy. So how much of what we do or or risk oftentimes has to do with that? And now that I'm going on 75, I can see how, and I'm happily married, (laughs) I'm not, you know, the sexual, the attraction aspect of various things in work aren't there for me. It's powerful to note that because it's such an energy force that can get you going, get your creativity going. It's not that you have to act on it. It acts on you. So I just wanted to address that now, because it's something that I've been thinking
1: about. You have had a remarkable career and have photographed perhaps thousands of some of the world's greatest, most interesting performers, artists, You've had friendships with those, some of those musicians. Certainly your relationship and friendship with Patti Smith comes to mind. Um, you also had romantic relationships with some of them, Sting, Bruce Springsteen, David Byrne. How much did those relationships impact the kind of portraiture you did with those specific people?
2: Well, I think that when you're working with someone who is a friend, much less a lover, you have opportunities to, you know, just be shooting all the time, making pictures, being part of something. Also in the friendship or in the love relationship, feeling like you're serving a purpose to help them to help further them along, you know, in part, my job, whether I know the person or I don't know the person is to help them in front of the camera to really feel comfortable and that they are in control. Because I think what scares many of the people who are in front of a camera, whether they're famous or not, is that sense of being out of control. So I know that I have skill sets that have been honed and sharpened, because I've been blessed with the opportunities to really just hang around and shoot people just just because I love making pictures, you know, and they're and they're my dolls. (laughs) And this is playtime. (laughs) So you know, all of that is incredibly fortunate. It's true, I have photographed 1000s of musicians over decades. But i've also photographed authors not just people who are in entertainment in front of the camera and the camera has first and foremost been a way for me to connect to other people to learn and to have some sort of sense of purpose you know like why am i here why am i in the room i want to be comfortable it took me a long time to be comfortable without having a camera on a really long time. I always, always, always had a camera on.
1: Why did you feel uncomfortable without one? Because what was my purpose? You
2: know, I always could feel like, oh, well, I'm here to, you know, make art. I'm here to do this. I'm here to do that. You know, it also having a piece of glass that you can bring up to your eye, like with the cell phone. In my day, your face was hidden. The camera's pretty big. You could be there, but not really be there. I'm in it, but I'm not of it. That's always been a kind of protective layer for me.
1: One thing that really struck me at the beginning of your career, you stated that you never really experienced what it meant to be a professional photographer until you got a call in 1976 to photograph Bob Dylan and Bette Midler. And you realized in that moment that you had to decide if you were going as a photographer or as a fan. And did you come there to make the most of your time by creating a portrait, or did you come there to meet Bob Dylan? How did you navigate being both a fan and there for a professional purpose? Well,
2: you know, I knew I was a professional photographer, but more than that, I had a sense of self where for the most part, when I photographed anybody, I felt like I had a lot to offer, that I'm very smart, very fun to be with, that I understand that time is valuable, and I'm gonna make the most of it for myself as well as for whoever is in front of the camera. That being said, there had only been two people in my life that I would have said I was a fan of. And what I mean by being a fan of is that I would not know what to say. and That's not who I am. And those people were Fred Astaire, and Bob Dylan. End of story. Nobody else ever intimidated me. I never thought anybody was better than me. In fact, obnoxiously, I felt I was smarter than most of the people that I photographed, that I had better taste in clothes, that I had a better life, that I had a better value system. Um, I didn't yearn for fame you know, I just thought I always have something to learn here, but I have a pretty strong sense of self. And I was concerned when I went to photograph Bob Dylan, because that shook me. I was in the back of a cab and I kept saying, I'm going to shoot Bob Dylan. i was trying to bring myself, I'm going to shoot Bob Dylan, say it out loud so I could hear it and get it in my head. And the cab driver pulled over and said, I don't want no assassins in my car, get out. And I went, no, 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 <laughs> I'm a photographer. And uh, I knew when I was in the elevator and I knew that recording studio, that when the doors opened up, I'd be right there in the control room. I knew in the elevator, I had to make that decision. Was I a fan or was I a photographer? To walk in that room and to be a fan of Bob Dylan, I wouldn't make the same kind of picture. It wouldn't be my picture. And I realized that when I walked in and I knew I had to go right to Bob, otherwise somebody might stop me from shooting. And I didn't know if the person who invited me there had actually asked Bob. And I don't make photographs of people who don't want to be photographed. So I walked right up to him and I said, put my hand and I always taught this to people who worked for me or who I trained in photography, no matter who it is, put your hand in theirs, shake their hand and say, Hi, I'm so and so. And that, I think, puts you on a certain level with that person. And he said, hi. And I said, you know, I'd like to make some pictures. And Bob responded by saying, I'm really sorry, but uh, I have a photographer here. And no, you can't make pictures. So I said, well, uh, with one photographer, you get one point of view. And with two photographers, you're going to get two points of view. So I can shoot, right? And he saw, I mean, that's how I said it. You know, he saw my determination. He saw I was smart. He saw I wasn't going to be pushed around. And he went, Yeah. (laughs) You know, I say take a positive approach, not like, Oh, could I just wait here? And then maybe later, we could do some pictures or blah, blah, blah. I don't know where I get that from. But if you create the situation for a person to say yes, you're far more likely to have them say yes. It just always made common sense to me. Talk
1: about calling Miles Davis a bastard. Well, that wasn't my best
2: moment. Would you rather not? No, 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 no. It's a fascinating uh, memory for me because it's always so clear an answer when I'm asked, you know, what's the most horrible experience you had photographing a celebrity, what's the best experience. And the most horrible and the best experience are the same experience. It was Miles Davis. It's a rather long story because the shoot itself, it was like eight hours before I ever got off of the picture. Um, He put me through a lot of testing. And finally, I really couldn't take it any longer. We were supposedly ready to shoot, and I had on Bulgarian folk music, and he said, take off that music. That was when I said, you really are a bastard, aren't you? And I hated him. I felt that I had kind of prostituted myself by hanging around for eight hours and letting this guy test me and not just do the work. And I was upset with myself. He said, son, his his kid was there, son, get me my horn. And my heart was so filled with like, you, I can't wait to get out of here. Get this shot. You disgust me. He picked up his horn and he started playing right to my face. And I literally felt my hatred melt, literally melt and The skies broke loose because there were like thunderstorm-type skies, and the sun burst through. And it was one of the most magical moments. It was going to the low of the low and then the high of the high, where as he played and I shot, tears were running down my face because I was absolutely positive that I was seeing Gabriel, that this was Gabriel blowing his horn, and that I was like the most blessed person in the universe to be there at that moment.
1: And the photographs are beautiful, by the way.
2: (laughs) The moment was even more beautiful.
1: I want to talk a little bit about, before I let you go, I have to talk about your, your latest book, Music in the 80s, I read that when you were first approached by your publisher to produce a book on the photography and the music of the 1980s, you were less than enthusiastic. Oh, yeah, I didn't want to do
2: it. Anyone in my age group, and I proved it with the quotes that open up the book.
1: (laughs) My favorite is Chris Steins, who said, the 80s murdered what was left of the 60s.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Chris and I are the same age. And if you look at it, it was really fascinating to me how I decided when it was my editor at Tashin who first asked me to do it. The book is published by Solan. And it only happened because Tashin had asked me to do a book on the 80s. And I went, oh, the 80s, I don't want to do the 80s. And he said, please, just put something together that I can show Benedict Tashin. So as I started to think about it, I thought, wait a minute, whenever I kind of lump something and have an overall attitude about it, I should really look more deeply into that. And so I started putting together the pictures, and I realized in the process of doing it how many different kinds of music were all popular in that 10-year period. And that's the only 10-year period in history that I can think of where not only were the older forms like rhythm and blues successful, but where jazz, where hip hop, rap, electronic music, there's so many different forms, ska music, all had popularity, reggae, the music of the police, and then what Michael Jackson was doing, what Madonna was doing pop music, you know, that changed. And so I really got into it. Then I made a little presentation. And <laughs> and he got back to me and he said, Well, we love it. But we decided we don't want to do anything on a decade. And I went, wait a minute. Now I'm sucked in and I love doing this. I have to complete this book. And I've done enough books with Rizzoli that, you know, fortunately for me, I could just call up and say, you know, you want a book on the eighties and they go, yeah. So that's how it came to be. And then I thought my attitude about the eighties, I'm going to ask various people who are my age. And then I'm going to ask like the next generation and then the next generation. And those people who were like, 14 like I asked Ben Stiller about the 80s and his answer was that of you know this was his decade just like the 60s was my decade yep that was really fun to do to go around to different generations of artists both artists in the book and then artists who were influenced by people in the book
0: what
1: made you decide to design the book with artists alphabetically. I thought that was rather genius because you really do see the range of the 80s. Well, that was the point. And believe it or not, I shot
2: more people than there are in the book that got left out because I already had too many pages. And I wanted to give more pages to artists, you know, like Michael Jackson, Madonna, The Police... They have more pages than some of the other artists because that really was a strong decade for them. Whereas, let's say, Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea, who had jazz hits, but not throughout the whole decade. And by putting them alphabetically, it was so clear how fashion, as well as musical styles, were so different. So under the bees to see Banana Rama next to Barry Manilow. Yeah, you, Barry really, Manilow. you really get how <laughs> yeah. different it was. Even to see Angela Bofield across from Apollonia.
1: Yeah, it was great to see photos of Apollonia.
2: Finding the alphabet, a way of really a vehicle to express how diversified the
1: decade was, was fun to do. You said that when you met Michael Jackson that he was like someone from another planet. And I'm wondering if you can talk about in what way was he like someone from another planet?
2: Well, when Michael was like five years old, the Jackson Five were a cartoon on Saturday Mm -hmm. morning TV. And I so clearly remember... Being five years old and sitting as close to the TV as I could, and like disappearing into it, basically, Michael grew up very differently than anyone I've ever known on this planet. Okay. Besides the fact that he was seeing himself as an animated character in a TV, and then he had this life, you know. <laughs> as the Jackson Five. You can't expect this person to behave and to view the world and to experience it like you would. So that's why I say, think of him as you would someone who's really from a different planet than you.
1: When you first saw Madonna, you didn't think she had what it took to make it. What did you think she was missing?
2: It's not that I didn't think she had what it took. Uh, I thought she had a lot of chutzpah. It's that I didn't think she had any talent. Uh, <laughs> her management was the same management as Michael Jackson. So they wanted me to work with her. At the time, Cindy Lauper, it was like, you know, do you choose the Beatles or do you choose the Stones? Well, there was Cindy Lauper and there was Madonna. Yep. And it was like, Cindy can really sing, okay? Cindy can really write. And I saw Madonna rolling around on the stage, and, you know, I just kind of put my head in my hand. But her will, I'd seen her do a variety of things, and I had heard uh, how she went after Seymour Stein when he was in the hospital. Because she wanted
1: that record deal. That's how she signed our contract. Yeah.
2: yeah. And I was in the office when she threw Freddie to man. I couldn't believe it. Freddie and Ron Weisner managed Michael Jackson. And she literally threw him up against the wall. She didn't even like acknowledge that I was in the room. She didn't know me then. But it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, the fact was she was doing this to her manager in front of another person. And she said, pay attention to me. (laughs) <laughs> she was a real handful you know and I just thought oh, do I wish that I had thought otherwise yes because she's a great subject listen I regret that I didn't acknowledge I mean I'm, these aren't huge regrets in my life but no I was wrong about Madonna I was wrong about the Beatles I was, you know as, as right as I am many times I'm wrong <laughs> so you know
1: <laughs>
2: who knows if i'm even 50 50 well you still
1: took some great photos of madonna
2: yeah but that's just concert and a uh, concert for me is a kind of execution how fast are you your composition especially back then you know when color was separating the camera from black and white and there weren't zoom lenses. There were a number of things that you really had to be more technically evolved than many who make pictures today, where digital cameras can do so much for you. And also, where artists have, you know, much better lighting, much better everything, hair, makeup, styling. So, Madonna was someone who was a great subject to either shoot in a documentary way or in the studio.
1: Well, I do want to talk to you about the work you've done with Patti Smith. Your photographs of her are some of my favorite photographs in the world. The cover of Easter, the ni- her 1977 album Easter, is really my favorite photograph of any celebrity. Lynn, I actually still remember first seeing it in a record store on Long Island. I was... 15 years old, and it just startled me. I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never seen a woman pose in that way. I'd never seen a woman with underarm hair in that way. I understand when you were shooting the cover, I think you were influenced by Dante Gabriel Rossetti's palette that he used in in the painting, The Annunciation. How did that influence what you were doing? What was it like to to shoot that photograph?
2: Well, when, when I shoot anything, I do research. That's the fun part. You know, I want to reflect the contents of the album and the intent of the artist who made it. And with Patty, and with actually many artists, when I shoot something, I might have something in mind. They might have something in mind. But I try a lot of different things and it's not until the shoot is over and we're going through it where some pictures that you might've thought would be the, the cover are better as publicity pictures. And then other pictures just stand out as the cover. So I was being very, very conscious about picking a color palette that reflected The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the blood of Christ, the red, the white of the purity, those colors all, there are values, meanings assigned to them. And from there, I think we were moving on to the publicity pictures. And I really was intent on having the public be able to see Patty as feminine. I mean, she's still padded. That's the underarm hair. You know, she's authentic, natural. No one really knew, especially because of Maplethorpe's
1: horses first yeah.
2: cover in the shirt mm-hmm. and in other covers. After that, there was, I'm blanking the name, oh, Radio Ethiopia. I had the back cover on that one. and Judy Lynn shot the front cover, and Patty didn't really look pretty. Again, she was very androgynous. And between that time, Patty had fallen and broken her neck. There were times where I helped to take care of her and would help bathe her. And Patty had like big boobs, you know. She had boobs, she had, you know, she had a great, I thought she had a great body. And I wanted to show that, I wanted to express the girl in her, the feminine. And so she brought along that kind of leotardic, you know, the undergarment.
1: Yeah, I think that was given to her by Robert Mapplethorpe, actually, from what I've yes. read. Yeah,
2: yeah, she brought that along. She was probably going to wear it under the white dress. So that's how that happened. But my my favorite pictures are always when the artist and I then look over them and we pick what the cover will be and give it to the record label.
1: That photograph of Patti Smith has so much context and mystery and magnetism. How do you... Well, that's Patty. Well, you <laughs> capture that moment. Do you know in that moment that that's the photo? I think I do. I feel like
2: I do, you know, and I think the artist does too. But it's reaffirmed,
1: you know, when you see the pictures. Yeah.
2: Sometimes I go, I know I got it. And I'm done.
1: My last question today is about the future. What are you working on now? What is your next project?
2: Oh, I got a couple of them. I'm doing a book with Bruce Springsteen for Tashin that will come out in fall of next year.
1: Wonderful.
2: And that's my book lineup. I haven't figured out what the book will be after that. I kind of want to take a break from that for a while, maybe. Although there's not much time left in my life, so maybe I there's no time for breaks.
1: Lynn, I'd like to close the show today by sharing something you've written that truly moved me about the nature of your work and the power of music. You stated that you've realized how the music that flows through a person has little to do with their conscious awareness of what they're singing about or playing and that it doesn't matter. And You go on to write, These are the bodies that carry the songs to us. These are the messengers chosen by us to play out our passions. These are people like the rest of us, some generous, some selfish, some genuine, some false. Fame adds to or subtracts from their beauty, their usefulness as artists, and often from their own humanity. They mirror our self-projection. My work is that reflection. It's really beautiful.
2: Well, thank you very much. It makes me think I ought to write more.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Lynn Goldsmith, thank you. Thank you for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. I'm thankful that we got this time to talk to each other. Lynn Goldsmith's latest book of photographs is titled Music in the 80s. You can find out lots more about everything Lynn is doing and has done at lynngoldsmith.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding Program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The Editor-in-Chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyman.